Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to another great week here on the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had the privilege of speaking with Tim Keller this week. Tim is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, which he started in 1989 and led to reaching over 5,000 in weekly attendance. He's also the chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which starts new churches in New York and other global cities. Tim is a New York Times bestselling author whose books have sold over 2 million copies and been translated into 25 languages. His latest is entitled Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference which collects stories from artists, thinkers, and leaders to provide a guide to faithful living in a pluralistic, fractured world. Now, on this week's episode, Tim and I discuss what he has learned over the years in regard to ministering fruitfully in a pluralistic society. Tim speaks on the importance of recognizing the pull of culture on the church, whether it's coming from liberalism or conservatism, and what we need to do to overcome those influences. Tim shares the simple yet effective advice his wife, Kathy, gave him to help reach people in Manhattan when they were planting Redeemer, and we talk about the value of humility, patience, and tolerance in ministry. This episode is packed with helpful insights, so be sure to share it, and now please join me in my conversation with Tim Keller. Tim, it's so good to have you with us. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Tim, one of the hallmarks of your ministry is your commitment to to really engaging the world, even when it might be uncomfortable, even when it may take you to risky places. And we see this commitment clearly, again, in this new book, to which you and several others have contributed, entitled Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Tim, I was wondering, as, as you look out across the church landscape here in North America, in your opinion, how well are we doing as the church when it comes to engaging the world? I'm sure there's, because there's, look, there's, there's 330,000 congregations or something like that. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then there's got to be lots and lots of bright spots. But if you're asking me overall, not well at all, Mm -hmm. not well at all. It it doesn't mean there may not be 20,000 points of light, but I would say, Broadly speaking, fairly bad. <laughs> right. Um, you share about the first church that you pastored in Hopewell, Virginia, and you you contrast the more secular environment of the Northeast from which you, you had come, uh, where you'd gone to school, to the more conservative worldview of small-town Virginia. And one of the things that you share that you and your wife, Kathy, soon recognize was that uh, the church in Virginia— was being influenced by conservative culture just as the communities in the Northeast were being influenced by liberal culture. Can you talk to us a bit about that kind of aha moment early in your ministry career, and then how did that impact how you approached ministry? Yeah, it was an aha moment because uh, when you grow up in the Northeast and you become a Christian and uh, at a, a liberal college, then you— you see, um, once you start to read the Bible and you believe the Bible, you see all sorts of ways in which um, the um, the secular culture around you, the liberal culture around you, is, comprom- is basically moving away from 
that what the Bible says about, say, say sex, for example, mm-hmm. uh, sex and gender. And you say, oh, my goodness, you know, we're uh, being the Bible says this about sex and gender. But my liberal secular culture says something else. And you you be, you can get into a combative mode saying, well, I'm going to have to be valiant for truth. But when I went down south into a blue collar southern culture, I realized the Bible doesn't just talk about sex and gender. It also talks about um race and poverty it also talks about racial justice and economic justice and when i got into conservative circles down there uh christian circles i found that that they had they were all combative about sex and gender but they basically looked the other way when it came to issues of racism and poverty and they just well that's not our job our job is just to save souls and that's not what the bible says which means that therefore they were being more, um, put it this way, that a, a conservative, secular conservative culture is individualistic. Mm. Liberal secular culture is uh, collectivistic. So a, uh, so a conservative uh, individualistic person looks at a poor person and says, you know why they're poor? It's their fault. Mm. The collectivist secular person says, you know why that person's poor? It's structural racism. Mm. It's structural See, one is Mar- one is Karl Marx. That's the liberal. One is John Locke. That's the conservative. Right. They're both basically secular. They're both reductionistic, and um, and Christianity is not. Christianity doesn't reduce the human beings to either a social being or a choosing being. You know, we're we're body and soul. We're uh, we we are relational. So Marx isn't totally wrong, uh, but we are moral, responsible. Uh, which means Locke isn't r- wrong. And when we look at what the Bible says is we should be concerned about race and, and the racial justice and poverty. And, and, uh, we should be against same sex marriage. We should be against abortion. Right. And immediately say, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, here's Christians that are being sucked into either a kind of secular liberal or a secular conservative direction. And I didn't see that till I actually was an outsider, you know, as an, as a young, um, Yankee going into the South, it's always easier to see the sins of another culture if you're an outsider. Mm-hmm. If you're on the inside, it's like asking a fish about water, and the fish says, "What's water?" Right. Uh, and so that was uh, that's all. What I just said there is basically laid out in my chapter. You know, you know, it's interesting, Tim. Early in your ministry, you you became comfortable with an openness to to reflection and self critique when it came to the church, when it came to ministry. You weren't just kind of, um, you know, discerning issues and inconsistencies with, with sort of the world out there, but also within the culture of the church. And, you know, you you began ministry, I think it was about 50, 50 years ago, right? Yeah, but I was still an outsider. See, I think the reason I was able to do more of a critique of the church is that I was not raised in the evangelical church. Mm. I came up, I, I went to a Lutheran church for a while. My, my parents' background, my, my dad was Lutheran, my mother was Catholic, I was Catholic, and then I was Lutheran, and we just didn't come up inside the kind of Orthodox Evangelical Church. And I see so many people who were raised in the Evangelical Church, including my own kids, I think, I, I think they've escaped this, but if you're raised in that Evangelical Church, it seems like you either are in reaction to it, and you're just so upset with it, and you're just, just writing the whole thing off, or you're defensive about it. Or you, or you can't see its sins. It's like you're, you're too much of an insider. And I think it was a real advantage for me 
to have come into it as a 20-year-old, basically. I was 20 before I really started to move away from, move into a more of an evangelical world. And I felt like it was easier for me to maybe see it because I was an outsider. Just like, a, like I said, when you come to another culture, if you move from one culture to another culture, it's a little easier to see that culture from the outside and see its pluses and minuses. Yeah, that's good. So for those who have um, grown up in a more, you know, like a more conservative evangelical culture um, and struggle with kind of self-critique or struggle with that kind of reflection, what advice would you give pastors and ministry leaders, you know, to kind of step back and and kind of come to a place where they're open to um, asking tough questions? Well, oh, gee, yeah. I mean— I thought, I, I thought you were going to say, I was going to say, you really better let your your young people growing up feel that you're open to critique. Mm. Because they're, they are going to either, a lot of them are, um, younger people 20, 30, 40 years ago were less, they didn't have social media. And social media, your kids are hearing enormous critiques of the church and Christianity. They're hearing it. Oh, my word. Right. And if you don't, if you don't, honestly, if you don't, I guess I would say you better get open to criticism or else you're going to lose everybody. You just can't say to people, uh, don't question me anymore. You can't, you can't get away with it. <laughs> I guess I, I would say, I would say be open to critique or die. Is, is, that, a, is that? Yeah, no, that's a good mantra. I think <laughs> you say, how would I, how do you encourage people to open the creek? Well, critique will be open to critique or die. So, yeah, I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that we're seeing more and more, you know, as as you write about, you know, living in a world of differences, um, it's it's that challenge where where people uh, within the church get really really bought in and really convinced um, of themselves or you know of their viewpoint of of them being being right, and so there's this challenge to step back and allow questions to be wrestled with, uh, so that we can move away from what might be cultural versus biblical well, that's the question no that's exactly right and you um it does mean reading the bible very carefully uh, you know tremper long when a friend of mine just came out with a book called the bible in the ballot box i think it is the bible in the ballot box i think and he he spends a, the first half of the book basically talking about how do you interpret the scripture so that you don't read your cultural assumptions into it Mm. And um, it's a, I mean, of course, he's an Old Testament scholar and very, very good at writing very popularly accessible uh, accounts or descriptions of how you do hermeneutics. But I do think that's a big, big, big part of it. You've just got to be careful um, not to be reading your your um, your cultural assumptions into the scriptures or out or another way worse out of the scriptures. In other words, not to go into the scripture and say, oh, take a look at that. It's, it's the way, for example, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the classic example, of course, is the way, of course, is the way Southern Christians, right before the Civil War, looked at what the Bible said about, you know, in the, here's the book of Exodus talking about slavery. Right. And, oh, look, it's okay. It's biblical, right. <laughs> yeah, it's biblical. Even though, you know, you, first of all, a person who's a slave, you can't have a slave for more than six years. Uh, or until they work their debt off. And there's a place in Exodus where it says, if you hit your slave and you knock out his tooth, he goes free. 
There's a place in Deuteronomy that says, if a slave runs away, you do not return him, because that shows he's been abused. I mean, clearly, you start to read this and you say, wait a minute, this is actually not slavery. Even though the word is, the, the Hebrew word abed, mm-hmm. which in older translations used to be translated servant, mm. today is translated slave. And so when you translate the word slave, immediately in the Old Testament slave, you say, oh, that's, you think of, you know, African chattel slavery, race-based, lifelong slavery where you own the person. It's very clear when you read the Old Testament that you did not own this slave. If you hit the slave and injured him, he went free, uh, and you only had him for six years at the most, even if his debt wasn't paid off. It was actually a form of bankruptcy law. It wasn't really what we call slavery. Now, when you read that like that, you suddenly say, oh, okay, that makes it hard now. (laughs) <laughs> to do two things. Liberals say, ah, look at the Old Testament. It condones slavery. So we can write the whole thing off. And, and of course, we actually had conservatives in the 1860s saying, the Bible says it's all right for me to own slaves. And, of course, both of them are refusing to really carefully say, no, wait, I, don't, I, I want to read the text in its original cultural context. I really need to make sure I, I'm not reading my views in or out of the text. And so we've got to do that today. And I think that would keep us from being as politically polarized as we are. Yeah, that's, that's good, Tim. And, and kind of on that same note, um, in, in your journey, when you moved your family to New York City to begin Redeemer Presbyterian Church, one that seems to be a, a big leap from pastoring a small, uh, you know, small town church in Virginia to suddenly um, in New York City. Um, but you had people who were wrestling with different worldviews, obviously, in Manhattan. So what were the challenges that you, you faced there in terms of people looking at just life and, and the world differently? Well, both, both New York City and Hopewell, Virginia, which is a little blue-collar town in the south, the only two places I've ever had churches. One was... Hopewell, Virginia, one is Manhattan, the only place the churches. And there is a sense in which both of them were um, missionary moves for me because both of them, I, I grew up in a, uh, well, in the 1950s, in a, a, a suburb in Pennsylvania. And so to go into the super urban world of Manhattan or to go into the more um, blue collar, rural southern world were both very different and when i went to when i I guess put this way when i went to um i think most people probably need to stay largely within their cultural milieu generally speaking if god calls you in fact there's even some places in the bible where it says you know don't if you're called and you uh let's just say you're a policeman and you get called, you, you get converted, the Holy Spirit converts you, then you should try to reach policemen. I mean, in other words, it's sort of natural that you try to reach your own people. That's mm-hmm. fine. Um, when I went to Hopewell, the people were so different. But after a couple of years, I realized, oh, I made the jump. Hmm. I was able to actually, I was a white-collar Yankee working with blue-collar collar Southerners. And basically, I, I made, you, you, you have to contextualize. You have to change the way in which you talk. You have to Try to be yourself, but at the same time, really put yourself in their shoes. Change the way you argue and reason and your illustrations and everything. So when I came to Manhattan, it was doing the same thing, only in a different direction. Frank, I was going in a, frankly, I was going, I'll put it this way. 
when I went to Hopewell, I was going to, to less sophisticated people than I was. But when I came to Manhattan, I was going to vastly more sophisticated people than I, way more urbane, way more cosmopolitan, way more worldwide, uh, way more polished and slick than me. And so, um, there are both missionary approaches, but I have to say it's to go, um, to a less cosmopolitan, sophisticated place takes humility, but to go to a more cosmopolitan, sophisticated place also takes humility because you know you're just not going to completely fit in. You know people are going to make fun of you. You know people are going to they're going to roll their eyes at you as being a hick from the sticks or you know somebody from the Bible Belt. So either way, I think the main way you make the jump into a different culture is you have to you have to really ask God to help you mortify your pride. So I think that's, so I, you may be asking me for an intellectual question. Well, how did you answer all their worldview issues? Basically it's a moral and spiritual issue. Yeah, that's good. That's good, Tim. What, what were some of the, some of the things that, that you did as you started Redeemer? Um, what were some of the things that you did to help people in, in Manhattan kind of overcome, you know, their, their initial objections or resistance to Christianity? How did you kind of break, break in? Oh, well, that's not as hard as you may think, believe it or not. I mean, I think, no, no, the hard part is the spiritual moral part. The hard part is to make yourself vulnerable, come to a place that's very expensive. And you know, if you fail, you're, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, know that people are going to be laughing at, I mean, I mean, all that stuff is, is the hard part. Uh, when it comes to actually making the connection, um, Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, says that the secular mindset is not the secular mindset is not based on reasoning it's based on assumptions that they take as axiomatic that are just beliefs hmm. one of them he says one of the beliefs is that that really intellectually mature people just don't believe in god another one is that emotionally mature people don't need to believe in god uh, now they have all sorts of uh, assumptions about faith, and they're not—they're not empirical. Uh, they're not empirical uh, conclusions based on logic or scientific investigation. They're, they're attitudes. And what Kathy always used to say to me, my wife Kathy would always say, is, if you get up there and you just present Christianity and you're not stupid, you've won. All you have to do is be- all you have to do is be nice because they think you are. They, they think that anybody who believes that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead would probably not have more than a third grade education. And if you just get up there and just talk in a way that is intellectually cogent and, and, and connects somewhat to some of their own needs and personal needs and fears, if you just show that you've read the same books that they have and they, they're not convincing to you and here's reasons why – he says, if you're just not, if you're just not an idiot, you've won. because they assume that believers are idiots. And so it's not as hard as you might think. <laughs> That's fascinating. Great wisdom from Kathy there, huh? <laughs> yes. That's excellent. Um, you referenced three key practices um, that your friend, law professor, uh, John yeah. Inazu, she shares as being vital to making civility and peace possible in a pluralistic culture. Right. So yes. he, he talks about humility, which you, you just referenced, tolerance patience. and patience. patience. Right. Um, yeah. right. So there there are probably some ministry leaders who'd say, Tim, yeah, I agree with humility, 
I agree with patience. You know, Jesus makes those very, very clear. Scripture makes those very, very clear. But they might push back on this idea of tolerance. So can you talk us through what do you mean by tolerance and why is tolerance so important? Well, now when John wrote his book, uh, Confident Pluralism, he lifts these up not just to Christians but to everybody. And he says we're not going to be able to get together. We're not going to be able to work together. We're not going to have a coherent society if we can't talk to each other and find common ground even when we don't believe, we, even if we disagree about the common good. It's uh, one of John's things is, is that when, when a, uh, a secular gay person, for example, when they imagine a good society, and when an evangelical Christian imagines a good society, they're not the same, are they? And so even if we disagree on a common good, is there a way for us to find some common ground by which as neighbors in a particular community, we can work together to find some overlapping commitments that we can do to make this neighborhood better. So how do you even talk rather than just throw bombs at each other? And he says you have to have these three traits. In humility, you essentially are recognizing the limits of what you can prove so that you don't look at the other person as an idiot for not believing what you believe. That's what he means by that. So he has very specific um, definitions here. Mm-hmm. Humility isn't just you know being modest in yourself. Humility is recognizing the limits of what you can prove, so that when you're reasoning with somebody, you just uh, are more modest in what you what you claim, and you and you're not harsh to them. Uh, patience is just having hope, and I, you already said those two are get it. Tolerance does not mean that you accept the other person's belief. In fact, he actually goes into great detail to say. Tolerance doesn't mean that you can't say to someone, I believe that your belief is egregious and terrible and cruel and really bad. (laughs) But what tolerance is, is recognizing their humanity. Now, from a Christian point of view, that means this is a person in the image of God. Mm. And therefore, I've got to treat this person as a person of great worth and dignity. I cannot show disrespect. I cannot show uh, incivility. Uh, uh, or you could take a look and see what, uh, what John Calvin actually says about loving your neighbor. He says, he says, it doesn't matter if you say, well, this person is not worthy of me. He says the image of God in that person should be so beautiful to you that it overcomes any, any sense that you don't, that this person doesn't deserve your respect. Wow. It's fascinating stuff in it. And therefore it's basically for a Christian, from the Christian point of view, it's just loving the image of God in a person. But, but, but John tries to make the point for a secular person that tolerance means recognizing their humanity even if you think that they are seriously wrong. So tolerance does not mean tolerating their belief. It means basically treating them with dignity. So he's very, very, very um, specific. And actually, this book, this Uncommon Ground book, is taking John's book and maybe James Hunter's book, uh, to change the world, who says similar things. And the, the chapters are ways of fleshing these ideas out because John's book and James Hunter's book, those are academic books. Mm-hmm. They're extremely well you know, worked out, but they are very intellectual. And what we wanted to do is we said, we believe that, they, that these books are right and how we should be engaging people. And we just want to show how it works out in our particular lives and, and the places that we're working. That's what those essays are. They're case studies, practical, personal ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I love about the book is that they 
as you said, they're stories. They're they're all narratives. You know, what I mean, right. they, they're all things that that as you read through, even just reading through your story as you shared, um, you get a sense of you know the the humanity behind it, as opposed to just something that's theoretical. But how these things, as you said, are, are have played out in real life, which yep. I think super powerful. Um, one of the arguments that many of those outside of the church often make is that the church um, cannot even come to agreement on so many issues itself, you know, within the church. So so how then can the church claim truth when there's so much division within the church? And, and we know that in Scripture, Paul encourages us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, yet unity seems to be this this great challenge for us as the church living in a world where there is great difference. So, Tim, as pastors and ministry leaders, how do we faithfully address this call to unity, both for the church herself and, just as importantly, for those outside who are not yet following Jesus? Well, no, that, that, okay, listen, that, the last part of your question is very important. For those outside, our unity is a very important witness. There is no, if they see us fighting each other, almost hating each other, well, seeming to hate each other more than we hate even the secular people, then that's just that just the it discredits us. Mm. Um, so yes, it is a huge witness. Mm. Our unity. On the other hand, let's say where is the unity? Um, I would say uh, our biggest problem right now is political disunity, not doctrinal. It's pretty remarkable. Mm. Uh, people used to just uh, nobody's caring. Nobody's arguing about baptism or tongues or things like that anymore. They're arguing about politics, and I do think that we've got to keep something very much in mind. The Bible says it is absolutely imperative to care for the poor, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely imperative, for example, to uh, uh, to be kind to the immigrant. To the alien and not to vilify the immigrant and the alien. Mm-hmm. But the Bible does not go beyond that and say, okay, so how many legal immigrants should you have in it this year? Did you have 500,000, a million, 1.5? It doesn't tell you that. Same thing with poverty. It says you've got to care about the poor. Does it tell you what to do? How high should taxes be? To what degree should we be redistributing income uh, to the poor? You know, what should the tax structure be? And those are areas of prudence, of difference that Bible doesn't tell me. I mean, I can go to the mat for something the Bible tells me. The Bible says that I should not commit adultery, so don't talk to me about open marriage. Right. So I'm just not going to go there. But the Bible says, though I should care for the poor, I could understand why somebody might say, well, we need to have higher taxes. And other people say, no, no, we ought to have lower taxes and let this be done through private charity. The Bible doesn't tell me about that. So if I fight over things like that, and I fight over tax structure or even things like gun control or immigration policy as if the person on the other side is evil, then I'm just I'm what the Bible says. That's what I stand on. Everything else is a matter of opinion. It's a matter of prudence, it's a matter of wisdom. And we should be willing to agree to disagree and not vilify one another. If somebody if somebody comes along and denies part of the scripture, I can say you are a heretic. I can do that. I hopefully I'll do that. Even that, even that I'll do with love. But when I talk to somebody else about immigration policy, I should not be t- treating them if they differ from me as a heretic. 
And I think unless we understand the difference between what the Bible says, which is got to, where my conscience is bound, and where the Bible does not speak, where there's real difference of opinion, and we should be respecting each other, unless I understand that division, we're never going to get unity. As soon as I start to say, well, yeah, I, I not only believe in the deity of Christ and the Trinity, but I also believe in this particular approach to you know, international policy, tax structure, and and immigration policy. If that, if you add those as if they are cardinal doctrines, then we're never going to have unity. And I actually think you're undermining and disrespecting the authority of the Bible when you do that. Yeah, no, that's that's good, Tim. So, so what what do you believe um, are the ways the church needs to move forward? Because, like you said, you know the the greatest um, kind of disunity in the church right now now is is political more so than anything else. So, you know, I, I guess the big question is. What can we do? What what is the wise, you know, path forward, and what is that really going to take from the church to to kind of bring bring everyone together? You're an interviewer, and you do not want your interviewee to say what I'm about to say, which is, I am really not sure. I mean, I know you want me to say something wise, so everybody can say, "Did you hear that great answer that you got on that part?" <laughs> I, I am not sure. I, I do think that um, that social media has taken is basically undermined institutions. Mm-hmm. And whereas you used to have people following the Billy Graham or the President of Wheaton College or the, um, you know, in other words, the, the 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 leaders of institutions used to be able to set policy and to say to everybody, let's come together and let's do this and let's be together. Mm-hmm. And now I don't see that. Uh, I'm not really sure what goes on. I don't know. I do not know the way forward at this point. No, I appreciate that, honestly, Tim. And um, that's that's something that's a a great matter of prayer, I think, for all of us, right? Yes. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) I didn't say. And by the way, that is not a perfunctory, oh, yes, of course we should pray about it, of course. No, no. I think that's actually extraordinary prayer has always been the one, the one ingredient in every revival mm. that is constant i mean one one revival it's outdoor preaching another revival it's small groups another revival i mean there's everything else seems to be different all over the map other than a basic recovery of the gospel and extraordinary prayer so i really do think at a time like this we need to do extraordinary prayer so actually you helped me give you an answer right there <laughs> okay tim oh, do you um, what what final words of encouragement as we're wrapping up here would would you like to share with the pastors and the church leaders who are listening in today? I studied the history of revivals. Uh, started with under Dr. Richard Lovelace at Gordon Conwell. Took a whole course on it, and I've been studying it ever since. And you try to look for what are the commonalities that the Reformation, that the the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Korean revivals, the East African revivals. What did they all have in common? And there was a real, uh, it, the two things actually, was there was always a recovery of the gospel, either um, from the left or the right. Uh, you can lose the gospel on the left by losing the, the truth of the scripture and, and doctrinal purity. You can lose it from the right by getting into legalism and moralism and just basically thinking you save yourself through your good works. Uh, you have to recover the gospel, and you also have to go to God with extraordinary prayer, not ordinary, but prevailing, kingdom-centered, corporate, um, passionate, sometimes prayer for years, 
And those two things are always the, you might say, the point of the spear for every new awakening or renewal or revival. And so we, we need to take hold of those two things and move forward. That's it. Excellent, brother. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to encourage our listeners um, to check out Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, and we'll have uh, links to that in our show notes. But uh, I certainly appreciate you, Tim, for taking the time to be with us. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.